first book, Hidden History, was dealt with the JFK assassination and related political uh, conspiracies, for lack of a better term. Uh, I had always looked at, at what I consider to be a class war uh, waged by the very rich against the rest of us for a very long time. My hero is uh, Huey Long. I devoted a chapter of this book to Huey Long. And uh, that's kind of funny because a lot of people, you know, I've been called communist. I've been called uh, reactionary. I'm, I'm all over the place. I'm a populist. And uh, I believe that the, when you have a situation we have right now, one of the most glaring statistic I can think of is the fact that half the country, the bottom 50%, make $27,000 or less a year and have less than 1% of the collective wealth. I don't think we can be a first world country with that kind of situation when half your country has nothing. So uh, that's the, my main impetus for writing the book was because what I see happening out there, I have children, hope to have grandchildren one day, and I want to leave them a country where they can have a chance to prosper like our generation did. Well, Don, you know, what, what you're saying sounds to me a bit, because I've done programs over the years that, uh, by which conspiracies are presented that sound similar. It sounds a little bit like the conspiracy theory that is the central idea of the John Birch Society. I don't know if you're familiar with their work, but um, yeah. you know, they, they make reference to this grand conspiracy of the super rich, both in this country and around the world, and combined with political uh, figures who sort of serve as a revolving door in and out of government, you know, and, and then on top of it, the uh, people who hold the high ground in, in the world of finance and banking and, and, and also uh, in the culture. And uh, you know they refer to it as a grand conspiracy to see certain institutions as operating at the very top of it. Um, do you see that at all in terms of uh, you know you say that the super rich control the wealth in this country? Uh, are they working in conjunction with uh, the political system and the cultural system as well? Yeah, I think they are, and I don't think it has to be any kind of a conspiracy where there are you know, clandestine meetings or uh, secret messages sent in the middle of the night. I think it's just the way the system works, and I, I looked at that way with politics. I, I call it it's, – it's basically organized corruption, and uh, the people that run things are looking after their own interests. As long ago as uh, William Henry Harrison, most people don't remember him. He was our shortest-lived president. He lived 32 days. He had a fantastic quote. It said something like, uh, in my history of politics, uh, I've discovered that every possible, everything we do and everything being done by our leaders is to benefit the rich and to keep the poor down. And it was just a fantastic quote. I, I'm paraphrasing. I, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. But, and, you know, the other thing we have is, you know, basically a, a rule of thumb is affluence means influence. The vast amount of people don't have any influence over their elected representatives. So, you try calling your congressional representative unless you're somebody who represents a huge uh, corporation or a huge bank or something like that, or maybe a popular pressure group that ha that has some kind of uh, you know influence over them. They're not going to listen. You're not going to listen to the average citizen. We saw that during the banker bailout of 2008, when 95% or so of every in, of the public in every poll was dead set against it, and yet the only choices we were given for president and the congressional leaders of both parties. We're dead fast in, in favor of it, and that's why it was passed, and it was a, just a, a, a terrible thing. And we saw what happened afterwards where uh, when you talk about the marketplace, six of those nine banks that were bailed out during the 2008 bailout gave out more bonuses that year after the bailout than their company made in profits that year. 
So I don't know what kind of a marketplace allows that, and I don't know how that's any kind of a business model, but that's the, the, the reality. That it's just huge greed on a grand scale. You know, it seems to me that what you're describing is kind of the, the, the human condition on a worldwide level that has been the, 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 the norm since the beginning of time. It's not an unusual situation where you have the people who control the most material wealth really also controlling the politics of any given country and, and the top institutions. And I think that the United States, and, and maybe to a certain extent Great Britain, but the United States in particular, was supposed to be and was a, a political experiment to get away from that. We were the first nation of mid-level shop owners and business people and farmers and small private owners um, and, and, you know, local, uh, local government. And, uh, you know, we, we, we set up a system of balance of power so that you wouldn't have such of a convergence of power in the hands of any one group that could then be influenced by the, by the super rich. And we also had, we were fortunate enough to have the people who were the wealthier people in this country have a pretty magnanimous attitude toward the development of individual rights. People like John, like the richest man in the country at that time was George Washington and uh, John Hancock here in Massachusetts. They were great patriots. They weren't interested in furthering their own pockets. They weren't interested in power. They were, they believed in this concept of a limited government and, and the development of a, of a franchise that would, would pass on to anyone who could, could, could get it and could achieve. And uh, to a certain extent, I think that your analysis is right in that uh, recent, this past century particularly, you've had a consolidation of wealth and you've had a convergence of that consolidation with the government itself. And uh, they do retain a very high position. You know, I've heard it euphemistically called the, the, Eastern, the liberal Eastern seaboard establishment. You know, it's kind of a a revolving door between uh, big business and banks and and the government itself. And, um, you know, it's a very sort of unholy alliance. Um, most of these people are liberal uh, generally. I mean, if you take a look at the top 1% in the United States, the vast majority of these wealthiest of the wealthy are liberal people who support liberal causes. And as you go down the list toward the mid-range, you get more conservative people. But the big money, the international money, the global powers tend to be in the hands of liberals. And coincidentally, these same liberals embrace a political philosophy that does not respect limited and local government. They tend to be internationalists. They tend to be globalists. They want to have an informal you know, structure around the world. And they don't seem to have much respect for the powers of elected officials it's all transferred to these informal, unelected agencies and entities that, that increasingly are wielding political power over us and that are making them even richer. What say you? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I, I believe that, uh, that what we see in this country, that's why I'm outside the left-right paradigm. Uh, we, we basically in America today, we pay in our taxes, uh, we pay for a, a socialist nanny state. The problem is we don't get 
we get fewer any services in return. We have a crumbling. One of the great attractions of Donald Trump's campaign was uh, he was the first candidate to point out the crumbling infrastructure. Our infrastructure is embarrassing. Uh, just recently over the weekend, we, we had a basically 40 mile per hour wind that took a power out. And I live in one of the wealthiest counties in the United States outside of Washington, D.C. We lost power for two days because of high winds. This is then we have the outdated power grids. We have uh, crumbling roads and bridges, airports. And, uh, you know, it, it does, we don't look like a first world country. We certainly don't, don't look like it with half the country having nothing. And we don't look like, we don't have the ambiance of a first world country. Then you drive along, you can see pockets of America. I, I've been posting recently on Facebook pictures of California in particular, Orange County, California. Again, a very wealthy county. It looks like, uh, you know, one of the, the worst places in Latin America now. There are tents everywhere. There are homeless everywhere. Sanctuary cities it looks awful. It doesn't look like America. And that's what we've built. And that's what I ran again is that I don't want to see us turn into a third world country. And we have so many of the aspects of the third world country and that, that elite at the top that has all the wealth. The middle class has been squeezed out where you have if, if you have, again, half the country has nothing. And uh, the one percent has so much and the top 20 percent are doing really well. Very limited amount of about 30 percent or so of us that are trying to hang on by our fingernails to some kind of middle-class life. And that's why you end up with a situation like Ross Perot. One of the many great things he said in his 1992 campaign, he said, you know, we're going to be the first generation of Americans that leaves a lower standard of living to our children. And he was exactly right. And it's terrible. I mean, unless things change dramatically, my children are not going to have the same standard of living I had. And I think that's terrible because America, especially in the post-war era, built a middle class like the world has never seen before where any job paid enough so that you could have a decent living, have as many children as you wanted. Uh, now you can see that uh, there's so many jobs that they tell you, you know, they're not, well, these are, these are entry-level jobs. Well, nobody can live on those entry-level jobs. And if half the country is making $27,000 or less, that means in most parts, certainly in my part of the uh, country, that is, you can't even buy, you know, rent an apartment. So how are you supposed to have any kind of independent living and raise families and, and continue uh, what was a great tradition. That's why, you know, the, the Make America Great Again uh, did resonate with so many people because some of us, the people that grew up in the 1950s and the 60s and the 70s recognized how different things were there, especially economically. And uh, I think that, that that is basically what Donald Trump is trying to do when he represented, um, you know, his, he's sort of in a way comparable to some of the founding fathers who themselves were quite rich, he's got plenty of money. I mean, he's made his money. He doesn't have to make any more. He you know, he's kind of looking to do something, give something back. But yet he wants to be listening to his inaugural address. I think it's one of the great, great speeches of my yeah, lifetime. Yeah. Where he talks about returning power to the people and getting it out of the hands of these, um, you know, these bureaucracies that run, you know, are basically legislating our lives and doing so at great personal benefit to them financially. And, uh, you know, the only thing I would take issue with you is that it's not a problem to be super rich. I don't think that when you're rich, when you have a guy that's rich, they're not taking something, their wealth isn't taking something away from someone else, as long as they obviously attained it honestly. Like, I don't think that uh, Bill Gates, for example, and the late Steve Jobs, I don't think that their wealth, took anything away from someone else. It's not, money is not a finite, it's not a commodity, it's an abstract idea. They created wealth out of nothing. 
I mean, they created wealth because of the ability to harness a movement at that time, which was the Internet and, and online, and market it and bring it to fruition and bring it to the market. And in the process, they not only made themselves rich, but they made many, many people rich at various levels, all the way down to the guy that's a clerk in the, in the Apple store or the guy that works in a factory. I mean, they created uh, capital and created production where it didn't exist. So there's nothing wrong with being rich. The problem is when you're rich and you're supporting policies that make sure that other people don't get rich or that, uh, you know, slow down the ability of people to get, you know, pull themselves up, maybe get into the middle class or even get, get a job, a subsistence job. And, and to my way of thinking, that, that's really the issue, not, not the fact that, that we have rich people. You know, I mean, it, it, that's what's hurting the middle class. You know, they've regulated business to the extent that they can get over those regulations because they're rich enough, but it hurts the guy trying to come up, trying to make something, trying to start a business, or trying to develop some savings, or trying to expand a small business. I mean, don't you think? Yeah, no, I, I have nothing against anybody being rich. We all want to be wealthy. Uh, we'd all like to, you know, prosper as much as we can. But I think the difference between the, the what we see the plutocrats of today, the people, the richest people in the world, the uh, uh, the Jeff Bezos types and so forth, what we see today with these guys, as opposed to the rich people in the past. You mentioned John Hancock, but you can go as far up as even some of the robber barons. I mean, the Carnegies and the Mellons and the Rockefellers. Even those guys, I, I, I mentioned something in Survival of Riches about the kind of benefits people uh, used to get working for Milton Hershey, for instance. The, those guys, they did not take as much of the pie, to, you know, to kind of quote Huey Long, as we see people doing today. They, Henry Ford famously you know, gave all his workers a raise. Uh, so, and he said you know, that he was kind of criticized by some of the other one percenters of his day. And he said, well, look, I've got to pay them enough to buy the product I'm making. And this is what the, the 1% of today don't seem to realize. They're not, if you're not paying your employees enough to buy the that you're selling, you can't have a thriving economy. I, I believe it's, I think it's Nick, and I can't remember the guy's name. He's kind of a renegade billionaire. I quoted him in the book. But as he talked about, he said, you know, I, I, can, I can have thousands of times more wealth than the average American, but I can never have thousands of times more purchasing power. How many things can I buy? How many TVs can I buy? How many yachts can I buy? You need to have people being able to buy things. And when you have the average American, I think it's something like 70-some percent of Americans don't even have $500 in savings. So, you know, almost 80% of us are living paycheck to paycheck. Obviously, there's no, you know, there's no discretionary income there. There's no liquid cash flow for people to be able to buy things as they could in the past. And with all the little trinkets that you have out there now, especially if you have children, you want to buy the, the, these, these gizmos for your kids to keep up with their, you know, otherwise, you're, what kind of parent you are going to feel guilty if you don't do that? So they have so many more attractive products out there, but you have less cash than you did in the past, and that's why people get mired in credit card debt because of the simple fact they're not, their income is not enough for them to be able to pay cash for these products, not to mention any kind of emergency situations that come up. You have a car repair or whatever. You, you can't pay for that. You don't have enough. If you have less than $500 savings, you're not going to be able to pay for that. So mm -hmm. that's why people get in the deadly, uh, you know, the deadly cycle of uh, credit card debt. So I think we need better – we need people, as you mentioned, magnanimous uh, 1% that you had in the past. We need people just have a little civic-minded nature. I mean, up until maybe the 80s, 
the people that ran companies weren't even referred to as CEOs. They were basically the president of the companies. In many cases, they had founded the companies themselves, or they had a, like a family tradition of it. They had a vested interest in the company. They wanted to see the company do well, and they did. They gave Christmas bonuses and Christmas turkeys out and a gold watch when people retired. People had pensions then. Now people don't have pensions. The new normal is you don't have pensions unless you're, you know, Congress or whatever. Then, you know, ironically, the people who largely don't have pensions, the public at large, are making sure they continue to finance the greatest pensions in the world. And these elected representatives who just do such a horrible job of, of representing us. But so I, I don't think it's a left-right thing. I think it's, again, I'm a populist. You mentioned concentrated power. I don't like concentrated power anywhere, whether it's business, government, or labor, whatever it is. And right now, there's no question we have too much power concentrated at the top. And you mentioned the separation of powers. The reason we can't do anything about it is the legislative branch has really given up the, the balance of powers to where the, uh, the judiciary has been legislating for a long time, and the executive always has too much power. So if the legislative branch just did what they were supposed to do under a separation of powers, and we could reelect them every two years, although we continue to reelect 96% of them somehow. I don't know how that works when they're doing such an awful job and we give them mm. less than 10% uh, approval rating in polls. I think we could do something if we just had some real representation, but the banker bailout, among many other things, show that we just don't have any represent. They're not, they're not doing the role of the people. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about the um, the policies that would result in that. I mean, I, I think that the um, you know the people that we're talking about who are more magnanimous employers, they tend to be the, the lower level, mid level businesses, the mom and pop businesses, people who have had businesses for a generation and who really feel invested in their employees. But some of these bigger guys, you know, they're they're, they're offshoring their their employment to, to China, where it's they're like well, we could mention Apple. I don't want to single them out, but you know the uh, you know they get virtual slave labor in a communist country where they get people they can pay people virtually nothing. They can undercut the great gains of American labor. I would suggest that um, unbridled immigration into this country hurts labor, and uh, absolutely, you know, it helps. It might help industry create something at a lower cost, which is why the National Chamber of Commerce is in favor of it. But, uh, you know, it's hurting the gains that labor has made in this country over 100 years. So I think that the policies actually that are represented by President Trump seem to be very proactive and progressive in the real meaning of the word in terms of uh, controlling and regulating immigration uh, get tax cuts, which have already resulted in more capital in people's pockets. You know, Nancy Pelosi might want to scoff and claim that these are crumbs. And she's, by the way, one of the richest members of Congress whose yep. uh, businesses are, they ban labor unions. But, yep. um, right. you know, the fact is that uh, it's not just the bonuses that are coming in across the board voluntarily by companies, but it's also the... Uh, you know, the, the policies of tariff and the, of um, better trade relations with foreign countries and uh, repatriation of foreign currency in the form of a corporate tax cut that's causing capital to come back in this country where it's invested in the businesses and it creates more jobs and more opportunities. And, you know, it's, it's generally a, a natural stimulus to the economy. So I think that there are policies practical policies that could be enacted and are trying to be enacted 
that'll help develop what what the, you know, the left has been talking about forever, which is raising the minimum wage, raising the mean income of people, and which is something that they've not been able to do by government fiat. It's it's more of a of an opportunity to let investment work its magic and doing things on a national level that would put the interests of American capital first in terms of how it's invested in this country. And there are other countries that have done this, so we could take an example from I would particularly point to Germany. You know, they have a lot of regulation of securities. They, uh, the labor unions don't have a hostile relation with the employers. They, they, they have to work together before they get any benefits. You know, there are other policies that they put in place that are, you know, kind of putting the nation first. It's, it's nationalism in its best meaning of the term. It's not hyper-nationalism, which is what the left is into, which is a nanny state control over people's lives and the expropriation of wealth. Uh, by means of uh, generating a, a class envy attitude. What say you? Yeah, and I think that was, uh, to me, one of the most resonating things that Trump said was that putting America first, and uh, obviously he got in a little trouble, because in, in our twisted mindset, you know, we somehow associate that with being a Nazi or something. It's ridiculous. I mean, to, to put right. your own nation's affairs first, it's, I mean, how, how more, much more common sense can you get? But America is akin to uh, a family living in a crumbling house with starving children who's going all around the neighborhood and trying to feed the other neighbor's children and trying to build their houses back up. And in many cases, tearing down the houses and then building them up again. Uh, we do so many crazy things. We definitely, and, and that's why, again, it, it, that resonated with me quite a bit. Now, obviously uh, that's going to be going against the grain of all our leadership because no one's put America's interest first for a very long time, but the first thing you do, obviously, you, we have to rebuild the infrastructure. And if Trump does anything at all about immigration, it looks like he's trying to do things here or there, but could have ended the H-1B visa program, which is, makes no sense. And in my industry, IT, I see how it's taken over there, and it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. We have so many people that are qualified and, and, and American citizens that could do these jobs. It's senseless to be importing people in, and but, but we know why they're doing it for the same reason that we bring in illegal immigrants and why people turn the other way is because of cheap labor, and it's driven down the the, uh, the wages of people at the bottom of the ladder. Well, the H-1B visa workers are driving down the wages of people in IT. Why should you pay a programmer $80,000 a year when you can get somebody from India that'll work for 40000 So it's a very simple business uh, you know, motivation there. And But, of course, they're not looking at the big picture. And when you have close to 100 million people of adult age in America out of work, the last thing you should be do, doing is importing labor from other countries to compete with them and drive down the wages they can get when you already have half the country making nothing. And as I point out, if you have 50 percent of your people basically with less than 1 percent of the wealth, every new wave of immigration, they're coming from the poorest parts of the world. They're adding to that 50%, and they're increasing the 50%. So if this continues, if Trump isn't able to do anything, especially if DACA, he grants amnesty to millions more and their families come in, and we continue to have open borders, you're looking at 60 maybe 70% in another 20 years that have nothing, and then you really begin to take on a kind of a Latin America banana republic. And is that what we want? I, I don't know. I don't want that, and I can't believe Americans do, but uh, – a lot of the problems we face is we're caught between uh, on the on the right you you have this incredible greed this kind of Ayn Rand worship where uh, you know the, the profits are all that matters and the kind of a super hyperized individual liberty which is a great thing but carried to its logical extreme you have quotes like 
we have no uh, we have no reason to help our neighbor was one of her quotes. But on the left, you had the social right, justice. Right, I mean, Yeah, that's extreme. That's a, she's yeah, a, and, and, same and, and, and but on the left, you, you have the social justice warriors who are into identity politics and all that matters to them is, you know, policing what people say and trying to get people fired. They're not con- nobody's concerned about civil liberties. The left could care less about civil liberties anymore. All they want to do is get people fired and watch for slip of the tongue. So a populist has nowhere to go at this point. Someone like myself, I'm just I'm a civil libertarian. I'm basically left on most issues, but the the left we have today is not the left of a Thomas Jefferson. It's not the left of a Charles Dickens. You know, it's it's not the left of a Lord Acton, people that I admire. It's not even the left of a John F. Kennedy, who I, who I still admire. So I think we just have to have a common sense approach to it. And I'd like to see some people talk about, uh, when you're talking about H1B visa program, most of the workers come from India. Most people don't realize that there are 30 million slaves in the world today, 10 million are in India. I don't see anyone calling for a boycott of India. And, uh, you know, that's just amazing to me. We still talk about slavery in America 150 years ago, and no one talks about the fact slavery still exists today, including from a country that we're drawing a large pool of workers from for absolutely no reason. All right, Donald, we're reaching toward the end of the segment. So, by the way, what is Hidden History about in a nutshell? Because I see you have the book propped up there behind you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a uh, well, it's it's uh, it's about the the 50 years since the JFK assassination. I go into the JFK assassination in detail, RFK, MLK, and I, I cover uh, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I cover all the Clinton scandals and the Bush scandals and the Reagan scandals and the Obama scandals, mm-hmm. and I just talk about how it's just. And I, I I'm very proud of the fact that they had the first uh, independent investigation of the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. And I looked into that and I found out uh, some things that uh, people I think would be amazed at. Great. You know, I should talk to you because I just finished a manuscript called Assassination in America. And I go back, I cover 31 cases where there was a rumor that there might have been an assassination, including, by the way, your friend William Henry Harrison. I go, yeah. back, to, um, I go back to Hamilton and I bring it right up to the Clinton body count. But uh, mm. we should talk. Maybe you might know <laughs> an agent I could talk to. But uh, <laughs> Donald, let people know where they can get your books. Well, I'm I'm all over the internet. Uh, you know, obviously on Amazon. Uh, there, my books are in most Barnes and Noble stores. Books a million. There are a few bookstores that are left. Uh, they're easy to find. I blog regularly at uh, Keeping It Unreal blog at DonaldJeffries.wordpress.com. People can write on, uh, can read my regular uh, writings there. All right, Donald. Listen, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate the interview, and I'm looking forward to reading your book. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks for having me, Jack.